It's the 3rd of January, 2015, and this is episode 175. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. So 2014 has gone by, (laughs) man, just absolutely ridiculously fast compared to 2013. You know, when we got started with this, this whole year has seemed to me to be, you know, at least half of the the length of our first year, right? Where we only had that first, you know, where we only had actually six or seven months. Yeah, except it's actually eight years in Bitcoin years. Bitcoin years are like dog years where (laughs) a calendar year is like eight Bitcoin years. (laughs) Yeah, something like that. We're at the end of another year in the world of Bitcoin. Seems like this is a good opportunity to take a look back at some of the trends from earlier this year and just some of the crazy stuff that's happened in this incredibly compressed time frame. Stephanie, you were talking about the scams thing and how most of the notes that you had were actually negative. And I wanted to jump into that because I don't feel like this has necessarily been a negative year for Bitcoin, but I think I agree with you. There have been a lot of things that taken alone are not great. I don't know if it's just the glow is wearing off, and I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer here, but my first few years in Bitcoin were way more fun than this past year. There was a lot of bad news this year, and there was good news too. There's always a place for optimism, but the bad news contributed to something that we're going to talk about definitely in this retrospective, which is technological burnout, or what did you call it, Adam? Disruptive burnout. I don't remember. Disruptive burnout. Yeah, you know, like you you get a ways into one of these things and there's this phenomenon where there's all this low-hanging fruit that's available. And if you get into something when all of it is still available, then you look around and everywhere you see, oh, there's just opportunity, opportunity. And that's still true to a great degree, I think, within cryptocurrency. But the amount of people who are seeking it and the redundancy built into that system, I think it makes it difficult. And then, of course, the real thing, for me at least, has been the concern about the threat of regulation or the threat of some force completely outside of what's possible within cryptocurrency or not coming in and basically spoiling the party by saying, oh, well, turns out all of this was illegal from a couple of years ago and we're retroactively applying this. Now all of your lives are ruined. So that, that's, that's an unlikely scenario to happen because, you know, there's a lot of progress and a lot of interesting people who are working in this space. And yet, because we don't have any level of certainty, it is a concern. I'm going to add crackdowns and 2.0s to my mind map on this retrospective thing because just summing up what you just said. But I think part of it is about values too, because the things that excited me about Bitcoin and got me interested in it in the first place were wow, this is really cool. I can send money instantly. All I need is an internet connection and the ability to like remember my password. (laughs) And uh, I can do this thing that I've never been able to do before. And look how cool this is. And it's totally outside the central banks and the government monetary system. And this could be really helpful for a lot of people around the world, including myself. That was the stuff that excited me about Bitcoin. I'm not super excited to be able to send Bitcoin to Microsoft. Wikipedia, maybe, yeah, because Bitcoin people were like lobbying them for years and years to take Bitcoin. And that's kind of become like an inside joke almost. But it's hard to get excited about the 8 millionth merchant adoption story. Now, Bitcoin isn't about shopping. How many times do we have to say that it's not 
about shopping. It's not even particularly good mechanism for retail shopping. It's not about shopping for you, Andreas, but it, it may be about shopping for some people. It's just a matter of values. And fundamentally, Bitcoin is neutral. Maybe for you or perhaps me, that's not what it's about. For me, it's, it's not about shopping, primarily because shopping is not an area where it has been difficult to do. In fact, I would say our entire society is geared towards funneling your entire life's energy into buying plastic crap for Christmas, year-round almost. So shopping is not something that is difficult for anybody's life, especially here in the United States. Shopping is about the easiest thing you can do. Well, it may be easy, but not secure. And there's been so many Home Depot, Target, loss of credit card data. That is actually a significant problem, right? Regardless of what you think of what the person is buying, you have to buy things and your credit card info could get stolen and that could create some problems for you. So that's one plus in the Bitcoin column. It is a plus if you have the technical skills to secure your Bitcoin. At this stage in the game, things are early. We don't have widespread use of hardware wallets. Operating systems are extremely vulnerable. People aren't using multi-sig and two-factor broadly enough. Uh, the education around Bitcoin security is pretty low. So I would say all in all, the average consumer, you're going to hate hearing this, but the average consumer is safer with a credit card than they are with Bitcoin. Now, on a long-term trend, that's not true. On a long-term trend, credit cards can never be made to be secure because they're broken by design and Bitcoin will end up being far, far, far more secure than credit cards could ever be because it's designed properly. But right now, in this snapshot in time for the average user, that's not really true. And the reason for that is because the technology as yet is not quite mature enough, which is why I think we need to be thinking about the areas where friction in money is really critical and where liberty is more important than free as in beer, right? But free as in not in jail is more important than free beer or discount or coupon or loyalty points. Right now, I think there are few, but some Russians who are rather glad that they have the option to convert rubles into Bitcoin and escape a currency collapse that is quite, quite a direct result of their own government central bank's policies and the fact that Russia runs a hollowed out economy, which is basically an oil producing state with a fit of fringe activity that gets subsidized by the oil. So there's really not much else going on in the Russian economy. It's just an energy producing state. So when you have a collapse in the price of oil and you have a government policy that is designed to protect the oil business over the average person, then the end result, of course, is that the average person gets screwed unless they have an exit valve. I think those are more interesting applications for Bitcoin. Now, that's not going to get us to the headlines and it's not going to get us the, as you said, the, you know, the 25th new merchant adoption use, which is great. But I do think that's going to make this technology global and a powerful force because I think that economy is much more important than the Xbox Live economy. I love the fact that Microsoft took Bitcoin, but I don't really think it's going to change the world. The other thing about the merchant adoption story is that these aren't really merchants accepting Bitcoin. 
These are merchants who work with, that in the case of Microsoft, it's a it's a BitPay operation. And I think the story that I saw was that they worked on it for like a month with Microsoft to get this integration in there. But Microsoft never touches Bitcoin in that situation. And that's true of Dell and that's true of most others, most other participants within the space, there's always been this argument that volume is what's necessary, right? Utility is what's required. And so volume will be the result of utility. But it kind of seems like that volume is sort of centralizing into the payment processors. And it's not like it hasn't been centralized before, but that trend is continuing as these larger merchants come online. It seems like that's not a sustainable situation. And yet BitPay continues to get bigger and continues to, to get more funds as a result of it. So do we think that this is going to continue to be the trend? Maybe for a while. I might expect it to change at some point. But I was going to say, you could actually make the argument that every time you buy something through one of those systems that just uses Bitcoin as the transactional method and the merchant isn't actually, quote, accepting Bitcoin, they're actually getting dollars. You're just using Bitcoin to give them the dollars. You could say that you're actually bolstering the whole system that's kind of neutering Bitcoin and reducing it to just that convenient payment method with none of the cool original features intact except that. I don't think that's entirely the case. I think you're right in that you're, you're really not taking advantage of the real power of Bitcoin or any of the exciting and interesting features. You're just really using it as an alternative payments network. But at the same time, what you're doing is you're generating volume and liquidity on both ends of the transaction, even if they're not touching Bitcoin, is generating liquidity in the exchanges, is generating volume in the exchanges. That's a good thing. That's a really good thing for the currency. It also helps for the network to have more and more people familiarize themselves with the technology. The analogy I would use is that introducing 4 million AOL users to limited internal only AOL email was not conducive to promoting the internet in all its full glory. But what it did is it got all of those 4 million AOL users hooked on instant communication and email and accustomed to the technology. And eventually they clamored for the real thing. And that fatal day AOL dumped all 4 million of them on the real internet, which arguably wasn't a good day for the internet. But nevertheless, we ended up with a lot more users who had been trained in this. Same thing with CompuServe. So I think even this kind of limited use still brings the technology to people, helps pique their interest, familiarizes them with it. And they only see the narrow side. They only see it as a Visa alternative, as an edgier PayPal, but that's okay too. I mean, it creates liquidity and volume. And quite honestly, that liquidity and volume can be used by all of those people who really need Bitcoin for other things like foreign remittances or to build startups or to get funding, you know, all the other cool things that we're really interested in. Andreas, I would argue that we haven't had our AOL moment yet, as you've kind of talked about before. So we have, we have certainly this year seen a dilution of the original groups that were interested in it. And this happened last year too. But I would argue it's to a much greater degree. Stephanie, I think that, that this is something that we've talked about too. The, the reasons for being involved for us were actually kind of abstract, right? There was immediate utility, but it was also this abstract of what was possible with it that was simply not possible within the existing spheres of possibility. Where do you think we are in that dilutive process relative to the you know, so-called AOL moment? It's hard to say where we are, but we're definitely progressing along that spectrum. It's interesting to see the newbies come in and sort of what, what their thought processes are and think back to 
what I was thinking at the time when I first found out about Bitcoin. There has been a lot of innovation that we're seeing in the Bitcoin 2.0 space and a lot of possibility and a lot of excitement about what's on the horizon. And I would argue that's probably because of the, quote, reasonable and little regulations that are already in place. Bitcoin's not moving much. I think Bitcoin is moving. I think it's moving in the way that matters the most, which is in terms of innovation as a technology. I think a lot of the feeling we have, this kind of blah feeling from this last year, which has been a hard year for a lot of people who are involved in Bitcoin, has to do with the fact that we notice the price decline more so than we notice the technological advancement and progress that's been made in just one year, the incredible progress that's been made in this space in terms of applications, in terms of diversity, in terms of the number of startups and developers getting involved in this, in terms of the excitement around innovation. I would have been surprised a year ago to see all of these startups doing all of the things they're doing in this space. We had all this exuberance in 2013 Well, part of that exuberance is because we're not rational beings carefully waiting and weighing out the pros and cons of a technology. In 2013, we all got swept up in the enthusiasm of a 56-fold increase in price. And now we're in the doldrums of a two and a half fold price decline. In the big scheme of things, a 56-fold increase followed by a two-and-a-half-fold decrease isn't such a big deal, but the brain as an emotional organ is really just seeing the decline and feeling the blues. It's hard to cut through that feeling and notice the incredible progress that's been made. The Bitcoin protocol now is running on a much more stable platform. The development just in the Bitcoin core reference implementation from 080, which was kind of around this time last year, to we're just about nearing the release of 010. The advancements in that code base, the improvements, the modularization work that's happened, the new protocols that have been introduced, the extremely rapid adoption of pay-to-script hash and multi-signature technology, and the development of innovative companies that build upon that to create new consumer protection models that have never existed before with multi-signature escrow and all of those capabilities that are coming to fore. Meanwhile, VentureScan is, is tracking 550 funded startups right now. That's just the tip of the iceberg. There's probably three or 4,000 startups out there working actively and directly in the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency space, all of which didn't exist two years ago. And that means thousands of developers focused on learning about and developing their skills in this space. Now, it's going to take a year or two before that wave of innovation crashes on the shores of the financial services industry, but it's coming. There is no question about it. And the thing is that that level of innovation cannot be replicated by any of the other payment systems. The payment industry is currently very crowded, but none of the other systems can replicate what a decentralized architecture, which is open to innovation without permission, can do. And the rate of innovation that can deliver, the types of solutions it can deliver, the types of choices it can give to consumers, you simply can't do with any other technology. And that's the everlasting advantage of a decentralized architecture. And that advantage may take a while to bloom, but it's happening. And it's going to have some very serious implications.
Uh, I appreciate that perspective, Andreas. I guess myself as a less technical user, I'll say, of Bitcoin, I don't necessarily see or pay attention to the improvements in the code, but that is very important. I mean, that's the whole basis of what Bitcoin is built on. So that's definitely important. The thing that I have felt most is multi-signature technology and the availability of it really just in the last few months. I mean, when we started out 2014, you as a average consumer type user couldn't really use multi-signature technology. You know, that was one of the things that I think undermined some of the confidence in Bitcoin. There were hacks and Bitcoins getting stolen. And now there's something you can really do about that. And there's great tutorials on how to use multi-signature technology online. In fact, Pamela Morgan, who we've had on the show before, has written excellent ones for multi-signature operating manuals. I totally recommend hers. I think multi-signature technology in Bitcoin, I felt empowered by it. So I really appreciate that. And that's just one of the possible things that can be done on this platform. It's just one of the innovations of the transaction scripting language. And, and it's really a relatively simple innovation. Again, we're, we're beginning to see the tip of this iceberg, but this technology runs deep. This architecture is capable of so much more. And people miss that completely, especially if there's glue to the BitcoinAverage.com site going, oh no, it's dropping again. It's true that there are a lot of startups in the works. That's going to be probably the next wave of exciting news when they start to actually really develop their products, which takes time. It definitely takes time. And you're right. And other people have observed that too, that there's a lot of startups in the works right now. And it's going to take a few years perhaps to incubate at least months, but it's coming and it's going to be really exciting when those start to come out. But I just want to go back to something that you said before, Andreas, which was that we started out 2014 on this total irrational high because of the huge price increase and, and the all-time high price of gold parity with Bitcoin of $1,200 or something of Bitcoin. One of the things that I think has contributed to my disillusionment personally, that wasn't real. <laughs> I mean, it was real in the sense that it really happened, but it was what we know from the Willie report and from the aftermath of the Mt. Gox disaster is that there was some stuff going on that contributed to that price and then pushed it up on other exchanges. Maybe that price wasn't reflective of the real value of Bitcoin. I hate to say that because we don't know the value of Bitcoin, right? Only the market knows all that information that's being integrated from people all around the world haggling and deciding on pricing of what they're willing to buy and sell Bitcoin for. But in that case of Mt. Gox and the all-time high, there were clearly some external factors influencing that that we later found out were from bots. Right. So right. The price is supposed to reflect the success, relatively speaking, of whatever it is that is being priced. And so it seems to me that that was certainly too early in the life cycle, given how much adoption and use we actually had at that point. Well, I mean, we all saw how after the tech bubble burst in 2000, really, that was the end of the internet. And oh, wait. No, it wasn't, <laughs> right. right? So, you know, th there's price discovery is an interesting topic. I think price discovery in Bitcoin is much better than it was two years ago when we had one exchange. It's better than it was a year ago when that one exchange was both insolvent and manipulating the trades by bots. But at the same time, you know, today you're looking at maybe 40% of the volume is from Bitfinex. How much of that is let's say, uh, day trading and professional traders. Question is, what is the impact of speculation and, you know, the speculators trading in this instead of caring about the fundamentals? 
And we're beginning to see the introduction of various trading instruments that that offer some limited forms of derivatives, you know, Bitcoin derivatives. So shorts and swaps and options and things like that, which are obviously going to have an effect on the market. If you take a step back and you say, well, where were we as we went from the double digit Bitcoin price to sub 100, right? Shot right through the $100 level and then kept climbing. Now, if you look at where we are today, it was hovering around the three, 400 level. It's been consistently above 200. If you take out that entire climb during the Gox days and you go before that, we were at the 200 levels then, we're at the 300 levels now. So you see, you know, in the long run, we've still had a steady increase over the last two years. That increase is in the order of 5x and not 55x. But 5x is not bad given what's happening in the broader economy and given the early stage of this adoption. Really, I think the issue is what granularity you're looking at and how accurate the price discovery is. The point is Bitcoin worked for me perfectly fine at 15. It worked at 100. It worked at 300. Now, for the people who bought in at 1,000 and, and dropped down to 300, it sucks. But for the people who have been in the market over the last couple of months, it's not that bad. And we're going to continue to see this kind of volatility for a while. Bitcoin isn't the $1,000 behemoth that the price indicates did last year and that was a lot of irrational exuberance but at the same time it's managed to maintain and gradually build value from pennies up to hundreds of dollars and uh, continue to broaden its appeal today we're looking at trading happening on some 35 different exchanges which are providing real-time feeds that's a pretty staggering increase since last year. So gradually the base of liquidity is broadening. I think we're going to start seeing some decrease in the volatility, but it's not going to be for another two years before we see that. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by CryptoKit.com, the easiest, fastest way to send Bitcoins right from your browser. That's K-R-Y-P-T-O-K-I-T.com if you'd like to learn more. Today's magic word is retro. That's R-E-T-R-O. Retro. You've got until the 7th of January to visit letstalkbitcoin.com and the Let's Talk Bitcoin iPhone app and enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Back to the show. Andreas, it was really interesting what you said about the the all-time high was irrational exuberant. Everybody knew there were problems going on at Mt. Gox at the time, so you could say that they had that knowledge. But the real point I wanted to make is that I don't think it's necessarily that irrational because, as I said before, we don't know the price of a Bitcoin. We don't know the right price. Only the market knows that. Only the crowd knows that. Is it, is it really irrational to believe that a Bitcoin could be worth $1,000, $1,200? Maybe not, because there were people who thought it was crazy when it hit $100. And the truth is that we really don't know. There's not a really good way for one person to actually know that. And so I don't know that it was so crazy or irrational for people to believe, maybe wishful thinking perhaps, but $1,000 could have been a legitimate price. We just didn't know it until afterwards. 
I don't think it really matters, honestly. If, again, I think it matters for emotional and sentimental reasons. I think that what matters more is the relative movement, not the absolute price. The absolute price has a lot to do with the number of Bitcoins that have been issued over time versus the adoption rate. But the, the unit, one Bitcoin, is, a, is an arbitrary unit, and therefore the price at which it's going to be priced is, is a relatively arbitrary price. What matters is whether it's moving up, down, and how fast it's moving in any particular direction, meaning the velocity or first derivative of that market is really what matters. And I think that's what affects sentiment. So really what we're talking about is first a massive rise, followed by a very disappointing slow and drawn out collapse. Now, honestly, if, if Bitcoin had gone from a hundred to a thousand and then the next month had collapsed back to a hundred, everybody would have been, oh, well, okay, great. Let's continue. The fact that it, that it took almost 14 months for that slow decline to reach the level it is today to undo that exuberance has just made it, you know, like a hard slog, right? It's like a forced march. <laughs> you just have to endure it week after week after week going, it's gone down again, <laughs> right? Instead of it being a quick, sharp, rip the bandaid off, um, adjust the market down. Again, I'm, I'm trying to look past that and, and recognize the fact that we're sitting here a year later. And, and two things are true. One, Bitcoin is still here. And, and that in itself, in a, in a five-year-old digital currency that is something that nobody believed could happen is a pretty remarkable fact. It's still here. It's still going. And from a, from a technical, from a network, from an adoption, from a users, from a, um, awareness, from a brand recognition, from every other metric, transaction volume, number of transactions, total liquidity of the economy, Bitcoin is now stronger this year than it was last year. And it keeps getting stronger. The price is not reflecting that right now. As long as it stayed put and didn't decline or increase massively, I think a more stable Bitcoin price would be a lot more important to the Bitcoin economy right now than would be a rapidly rising price. I'd rather see stability than see massive increase because stability would give us a better basis on which to make investment decisions. It's the volatility that is the really difficult thing and kind of this uncertainty that it creates and the emotional impact it creates. Certainly, the price seems to be a little bit of a focus in this conversation, but I kind of want to back it out a little bit. I remember last year, it was just about this time, Andreas, that you sat down with Adam Back and you talked about the idea of sidechains. Uh, yes, we first introduced sidechains just after it was more than a year. It was in November of 13, just after the Las Vegas conference. He made a point about digital scarcity, I think, that we all just sort of laughed off, or certainly I did. And I wonder, maybe this is Mt. Gox, maybe all of that stuff with the Willie Report is true, but ultimately we don't really know that. We're still kind of guessing and talking about this in the context of our best guesses based on the current information. Adam Back basically said that Bitcoin would suffer if the focus wasn't on Bitcoin as the primary one, at least, and everything else is just a you know, little experiment that has no mo uh, monetary value in it. And yet this year we've seen not just altcoins, but also metacoins, coins built on top of Bitcoin that essentially extract value out of the Bitcoin ecosystem from a certain perspective. From another perspective, you can think about it kind of like decentralized or diversified innovation 
because nobody can stop anybody from building anything outside of Bitcoin. And if the choice is to build your own thing that has its innovations built in, where you have this huge advantage because you're the first one there versus building it on a already mature platform that where the token like Bitcoin costs, you know, at the time, a thousand dollars, the, the math there kind of pushes people, it seems towards doing things outside of Bitcoin that utilize all of the advantages of Bitcoin, but don't actually patronize the ecosystem besides being involved a little bit. Andreas, what did you think then about that argument? And has that changed at all in, in this year? I think that argument is valid in some ways, but I think that what we're seeing in terms of innovation is mostly the understanding that because of the security advantages of the massive hashing power of Bitcoin, because of the network effect, because of the brand awareness, because of the simple strength of Bitcoin as it stands today, there are really no opportunities for alternatives to compete effectively and flourish without such an enormous amount of positive differentiation, some unique feature that Bitcoin cannot offer or copy. And sidechains, you know, or other technologies that build on top of Bitcoin, Counterparty, for example, Mastercoin, other things, colored coins that are coming along, all of these simply serve to accentuate that advantage because they now offer these features with the advantage of the enormous security infrastructure that secures the Bitcoin blockchain. So now you don't need to go off chain, which has really kind of reduced the appeal of many altcoins now that these tokens can securely be managed on top of Bitcoin. If anything, the, the scarcity argument really has shown its strength because very few things can really compete against Bitcoin. And most of the development that's happening is not drawing from Bitcoin, it's building on top of Bitcoin. So if you can have the same scarce coins, the same limited supply of coins of 21 million coins now support not just the primary currency and transactional application, but also being used for all of these tokens and asset registries and other applications that are being built on top, that doesn't reduce the scarcity. In fact, it increases the scarcity. It means that you're now using the same pool of coins for more applications. And that really increases the demand side of the equation without changing the supply side of the equation. I think Adam was absolutely right, but I think his fear that the abundance of alternative coins will somehow reduce the appeal or reduce the value of Bitcoin scarcity, I don't think that's really happening. I think if anything, the other coins are failing to differentiate enough. So that just continues to emphasize Bitcoin's advantage. We have seen a lot of adoption this year, but the adoption has been a kind of with these bridge services, right? Like services like Coinbase are being wildly successful in this environment because they really focus on ease of use to the point where you aren't actually interacting with Bitcoin. They're doing it on your behalf and you're just kind of instructing them what to do for you. They have a multi-sig service too. And they probably called it that because multi-sig has become a very hot topic. You know, it's been a bit of a buzzword. But if you actually look into how they do it, it again doesn't really use Bitcoin at all. It just uses your various accounts with Coinbase. So the question here is last year, we talked to a lot of people who were like, the problem is Bitcoin wallets. They're not easy enough to use. We're going to fix that problem. And there have been several that have come out. Off the top of my head, I can think of a Hive wallet, which both web and uh, was Mac before that and is very, very simple and easy to use. Things like CryptoKit, there's a FIVA wallet, Airbits. 
there have been these applications that have come out both in terms of, you know, web available and, uh, and on phones and mobile devices. And yet I'm not really seeing too much adoption from them. What are we still missing? Why isn't ease of use making a difference? Or is it just that these companies are so small that they're not able to kind of get the word out? And so we just stay with the easiest possible choice. Ease of use is a very big deal. It takes time to get right. And there will be many, many attempts to get it right. I think we're going to continue to see startups focus on that. We're really missing the picture here. I mean, the advancement and proliferation of really, really amazing wallets. is. So here's another technology that we kind of missed. In 2013, at the Bitcoin conference in San Jose, Thomas Bloomer introduced one of the first implementations of BIP32, the hierarchical deterministic wallet. Wallets that could generate new keys for every transaction, new addresses for every transaction, but could also be backed up with a single seed. Now, that had just been specified as a standard a few months before. The first implementation came out in, in the spring of 2013. In 2014, we have now seen almost every single wallet adopt a hierarchical deterministic wallet structure and become highly interoperable and interchangeable, where you can export and import from one wallet to another, which now makes it easier for consumers who are using one wallet to simply back up their wallets in 12 to 24 English words, and then use those same English words to import their entire wallet with all of the transaction history into another application, uh, making the portability tremendously easy. And at the same time, We've seen the same technology being adopted by hardware wallets like the Trezor. So I think we've made enormous progress. I mean, that was a really difficult technical standard, and it represents a giant leap forward in terms of better practices on address reuse and convenience for users and ease of backup, problems that used to be huge with Bitcoin wallets and have now gone away. Now you can have a lot more ease of use for the end user telling someone that they can back up their entire Bitcoin fortune with 24 English words and move it to any compatible wallet. That's huge for users. And we've now seen this adopted in at least a dozen different wallets. That's just happened in the last three or four months, I think, really, you've seen most of these come out. Today, Mycelium announced an iOS version, for example, again, of an HD BIP32 compatible wallet that, that is fully interoperable with the standards that the other wallets use too. This is really good news, and it's happening all across the ecosystem. Now, it takes a while for people to change wallets. User interfaces are sticky. It's hard to make the transition for most users. But at the same time, that doesn't matter, because from an adoption perspective, the current users of Bitcoin represent only a tiny fraction of the future users of Bitcoin. So as new users come in, they're going to now pick an HD wallet, a really good functional HD wallet with great backup capabilities, because those are the wallets that are available. And so gradually, they're going to marginalize the people who stick to older, clunkier, less functional wallets. So I'm really excited. I mean, that together with Multisig has been uh, an incredible advance in this technology. One thing that's interesting to think about with HD wallets is how it affects privacy, I guess. In one sense, you could say it's good because people tend to reuse old addresses less. On the other hand, multiple addresses can be kind of linked together. And so 
I don't know, Andreas, what do you think? I, I'm i just thinking about it now. I haven't seen much real significant progress on the privacy front with Bitcoin. Do you think that's coming? Is that going to be something that people value? And what is what has gone on with it this year that you've seen? You're absolutely right. Privacy has fallen on the wayside, I think, a, a lot because this has also been the year of regulation. And there's a lot of defensiveness uh, among uh, especially Bitcoin companies and funded Bitcoin companies to not appear to be catering to illicit uses of the currency and, and, and fostering anonymity. Which is sad, but in fact, uh, hierarchical deterministic wallets, HD wallets, do not have links between the addresses. So address reuse as a best practice. The HD wallets make it very easy to do address a new address per transaction. They make it very easy for you to stop the practice of address reuse. In fact, if you're using an HD wallet, you have to override the wallet to reuse an address because every time you hit receive, it will give you a new one anyway until you've used it. From the wallet's perspective, those addresses are linked and you can spend them all as if they're sitting in one wallet. But from the outside perspective, they're not linked in any way. And in fact, there's no mathematical way to extract a relationship between addresses other than to do statistical and taint analysis, which if you look at it from that perspective, HD wallets have made statistical analysis a lot harder by by making every transaction a new a new address, unlike the, the previous model. So they represent, in fact, a significant improvement in privacy. And the best part about it is that they don't require special action by the user. They don't require the user to say, I want to be private, or I want to take these extra steps to secure my privacy, which has always been a problem because technologies like that are not broadly adopted. They're more like SSL than they are PGP, if you, if you see what I mean. Just by using an HD wallet, you're not only increasing your privacy, you're increasing everybody's privacy because you're reducing address reuse across the entire Bitcoin network. And that's now the standard on all wallets. Now, that's a really great advancement for privacy, and it happened in a very, very subtle way. So, for instance, if you have an HD wallet that contains multiple addresses and you have, let's say, half a Bitcoin in one address and another half a Bitcoin in a second address, and you want to pay one Bitcoin to some third address. My understanding was that the inputs would get linked. So those two addresses, which both have half a Bitcoin sitting in them, will both in the same transaction send their output to the address that you want to pay to. Is that not correct? That is correct. But that that is also the case when you're using any other type of wallet. So the difference is that previously, those unspent transaction outputs, if you like, would have already been linked. Now they're only linked if you happen to spend to a larger transaction that aggregates them. Essentially, what, what I'm saying is there's less linking and less address taint going on now with HD wallets versus with the old model where there was a lot of address reuse. And the relevant part here is that that comes at no additional hassle for the user. So you get an optimization without a cost. Exactly. It's, it's in fact completely transparent to the user or rather even better. The user would have to take deliberate action to subvert and cause address reuse, which is, which is more difficult to do 
in an HD wallet, you have to, you know, open the address, uh, the receive address and go back in your transactions, find an old one and try to reuse it. Otherwise, the wallet will present you with a new one. Stephanie, the difference is now with HD wallets, address taint or address statistical linking, if you like, happens on spending, whereas before it was happening both on spending and on receiving. And now it only happens on spending if you need enough spending to aggregate more than one source. So it's a marginal improvement in privacy. In general, I haven't really seen much prioritizing of privacy features. And as you noted, that's probably because of all the regulatory stuff. But even in altcoin, I guess you could say we've had dark wallets. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, this is the year of dark wallets. So in in one very significant way, there has been and not just a dark wallet, but also of open bazaar or dark market. Yeah. This, is, this has actually been a year of tremendous advancement in the availability of privacy technology as a design pattern that can be re- reused by others in the future. And the best thing is that neither of those two technologies were developed as an alt chain or altcoin. They're part of Bitcoin. But that's all happening outside the system. These are not VC funded companies, startups, you know, who are bowing down to all the rules and regulations that don't even exist yet. That's a feature, not a bug. In fact, some of these were developed by an organization called Unsystem. And actually, it's funny because I interviewed the guys from Airbits at a recent Bitcoin conference in Las Vegas, and they actually used LeBitcoin and some of the dark wallet code in Airbits, which is I don't want to call them an in-the-system company, but they're a company and they've got an app and it's in the iOS store and the Android store. And so that code is maybe starting to get integrated in some of the, quote, in-the-system companies. To make a slight distinction there, LibBitcoin is very different from Dark Wallet. LibBitcoin is a foundational technology and platform that is a highly modular, multi-threaded, very clean implementation of Bitcoin support libraries and Bitcoin code. And what it does is it allows you to very easily build any kind of Bitcoin application on top of it. And that application will be highly performant. It gives you a much better basis, just like Bitcoin J for Java or Bitcoin JS. These are being used as foundational libraries across the board in thousands of projects. Or Bitcoin D. I guess we have seen a couple of different alternative implementations of Bitcoin coming into more prominence this year. Correct. And and also BTCD, which is implemented in Go, has has, uh, developed a full compatible node. But I actually don't see too many projects using Bitcoin D as a foundational library. And the reason is that it's not very good in terms of modularity. In fact, one of the ongoing discussions now is with uh, version 10, there's a concerted effort to separate out all of the code that has a bearing on the consensus mechanism into a separate library that can be modularized and reused called libconsensus. And then separate out all of the rest of the code, which is more about Bitcoin implementation around the edges, network code and coordination code and the wallet code and various address building and manipulation code. All of that is is being split into separate libraries. A lot of the work that's been going on in Bitcoin Core since the beginning, really, has been to turn what was a hairball of tightly coupled code into much more modular and clean code that can be used as a foundation for other tools. Andreas, before we get out of this topic, one of the other kind of innovations that hit this year was hardware wallets. 
And I actually was expecting it to have maybe a little bit more of an impact than it has. There was the Trezor, which I believe shipped their product a couple of months ago. So did you wind up getting your hands on one? Yeah, I, uh, more than one. In fact, I have a number of Trezors. I've been using them since August. I love my Trezor, I have to tell you. I find it to be the easiest, most simple way to implement very high levels of security for my day-to-day Bitcoin receiving and spending. Uh, it allows me to use HD wallets right out of the box and use separate addresses for every transaction. I feel very confident about the, the security of the Trezor. It's a, it's a really, really nice little platform. Now, I have no disclaimer here. I have no relationship with Trezor, and I'm not endorsing it as a technology. I think hardware wallets as a whole are a great area of innovation, and we're going to see more of them uh, just about a month ago not even a month ago, Ledger released their USB smart card-based hardware wallet. I think it's a smart card-based one. I've ordered a couple to, to evaluate them. And there's other players building other forms of hardware wallets that have announced already. In the beginning, everything was so new, right? Everything was so new. We had all of these things that we didn't understand, or we were trying to understand, or we were trying to help other people understand. And the new stuff in that same way hasn't necessarily stopped, but, but it's become a lot more diffuse. I think that, you know, Stephanie, again, we were talking about this. It's that you can't constantly innovate. What the cycle is really is a process of innovation and then optimization. And in Bitcoin, it's a little bit weird. In cryptocurrency, it's a little bit weird because in decentralized systems, those two things don't actually happen at different times. They happen at the same time, but there is a, a flow to kind of the whole environment, it feels like, where Something new is, is put out, and then it takes people a while to understand what the capabilities of it are and how it can be useful to them. And then at that point, you see new innovation that builds on top of the old innovation. And I would argue that's essentially been the 2.0 movement. You know, it's not like they're doing anything fundamentally that was impossible. They were doing something that was fundamentally impossible before Bitcoin provided the platform by which you could do it. Thanks for listening to episode 175 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show is provided by Stephanie Murphy, Andreas Antonopoulos, and Adam B. Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens. This episode was edited by Denise Levine. See you next time.